Welcome to Farming Internal, an eternal podcast for farmers, hosted by me, Patrick, or Padumaru in game, and Hats on Lamps. Hey, Hats. Hey, how's it going? Good. And we have a special guest this week. Uh, we're bringing him back. Uh, Tyler is here. Hey, Tyler. Hey, how you doing? Good. Yeah, so it's uh, episode 76. For those of you tuning in for the first time, we're a draft-focused podcast. Our goal is to help you and me, mostly me, get better at draft. We get into the nitty-gritty of the drafting process with the little meta analysis and play tips thrown in. And so this week, we're talking about the draft changes. And because um, Hats and I have no thoughts, we thought we'd bring someone in with a lot of thoughts, which is why we asked Tyler, and he graciously accepted to come on the podcast again, because last week we did their sealed episode. That went great. Tyler's been streaming a whole bunch, playing a lot of games, hopefully forming a lot of thoughts that he'll then share with us on this podcast to help Hats and I out, and all of you, in uh, in this format. So let's begin. So how was everyone's draft week? I had an interesting uh, draft week, for oh, sure. Oh, Tyler. Tyler. I mean, oh. Tyler. How was your draft week? <laughs> Sorry. I, maybe I went out of order here. I don't. I don't know how this works with two hosts. Uh, but my draft week was pretty, pretty good for the most part. Um, I'll just, I'll just start. Like in my mind, this form, whole format starts five days ago because we're post, post Wild Wild West. We're in the new, you know, more accurate packs. And w- what I can say is the power level of this format is super high, and my week has went pretty well. Um, I'm doing things that are a little bit off the off the script. As far as on the stream, like for instance, yesterday I did. I spent ten hours intentionally forcing mono faction decks out, and like deciding before I went in. And I mean, the power level of the format's high enough that even forcing things seems to be successful. So yeah, it's going good. Good week. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting so how would you say you it was a successful experiment to be forcing the colors any colors in particular do better or worse than others uh yes it was successful and we're gonna take we're gonna just pretend that shadow is not a color (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but yeah the the other four colors and factions great i mean the the depth of the cards and the commons that are offered and boosted um, and we'll get into that later are high enough that you can build a deck out of commons and uncommons and be successful if you decide to... No, I'm not saying that that's correct is what you should do, but as an experiment, it was successful in all colors. So, Hats, how was your week? Uh, My week was rocky. Uh, I haven't really been focused on Eternal. I've got a lot of other stuff going on right now. I'm moving, and there's a lot to do. Uh, But uh, I've had... I I don't know. I've I've made some observations. I'm really happy that the format is at a higher power level than the last one um because even though i'm struggling it's at least i i at least am not struggling to find enough playables uh for my struggling deck. I, up a playable deck yeah i've got a, i've got a deck and uh, and all of the cards in it do things uh you know you can like like i can't possibly complain about like uh two packs worth of of just drek like before the changes because <laughs> they really chose like the mo- some of the most playable limited cards available in Eternal to fill out the draft, uh, the curated draft packs with this time. And just for anybody who doesn't know exactly what happened in the last change to draft, they uh, 
Direwolf, um, switch the pack orders so that the curated draft packs are packs one and four, and set nine is uh, is packs two and three, and then change the rarity, um, change the 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 cards that are boosted in how often you see them, um, and really fundamentally changed which cards are boosted now. And also, I think they simplified it. I'm not sure if they had still had three tiers of of, of rarity uh, last time, but now it's just some cards you see ten times. Uh, as often and those really define the format and then everything else is just one times and you won't see those nearly as often yes they um in the last format uh it was they did have the three tiered system still so this is the first format without the three tiered system it's back to two tiers just a one and a ten okay well i'm a big fan of that because i think the simpler um the underlying like <laughs> structure of the format, the better it is because then you can really get an idea of what's going on instead of, uh, for one thing, you know what to play around in your games because you know what people are likely to have. And then yes. there's the extra cards that you see at one times. Uh, there, it's enough to add a little spice on top of things so that you're not drafting the same deck every time. Um, and I'm still, I'm still okay with that, but it's not... You, you don't see those cards often enough where you have to basically play around every possible card that could be in your opponent's hand. You're pretty sure if a red player attacks you and they've got a fast spell uh, that it's going to be, you know, it's going to be uh, something that boosts all of their units or it's going to be char. Or it's going, You know, you've got a fairly small number of things that you it's probably going to be. So playing it feels a lot more focused. So I like the shape of the format. I just don't have a grasp on it because I haven't put the time in yet. Uh, that's how my draft week went. Yeah. No, no I, I agree with that. I, I also like the fact that they simplified the tier system. And I, I do kind of like the fact that they simplified it by keeping it this extreme. You know, we've had this two-tier system before, but I think that it started with like 1X and 3X. And then they also they then tried one x and five x, and then yeah, they went. It wasn't enough. I agree with you. It yeah. Was... Then they went to like one three six, and then one five ten, and now it's just one in ten. And um, yeah, I think that means the boosted cards are like really boosted, so you're just way, way, way more likely to see them. And then I also like that the five x's are gone because I think it was conf- a little tricky before where. It was really hard to tell whether like an archetype was supported because it would be like 5x and then, you know, like cards that you would need to make this kind of deck work were 5x and then you just couldn't really bank on it because even though they were boosted, they were like half as boosted. And so it felt weird to try to like hope you (laughs) hope you opened a 5x common or uncommon to fill out your deck and stuff. Right. You couldn't plan ahead at all, really, Um, because even even though some of the cards were 10 times uh, because there were, were all of these five times cards kind of messing with the numbers. You didn't even know if you were going to see those 10 time cards. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So how, was, done, uh, how was your week? I've done a, a, a fair amount of drafting, uh, all considering, like uh, Tyler said, I kind of have been considering this week. Uh, well, yeah, this my draft week. The format to have started this week more or less because uh i just personally really dislike this whole bot draft period it's just like 
incredibly frustrating to me as someone who's more interested in drafting for the drafting than like for the cards. And it like really turned me off to the format for a little bit. It's just, I don't know. It's hard for me to like articulate it or put it into words, but like it almost made me stop playing eternal for a couple weeks just because it's just so frustrating to me to like not to be playing draft but feeling like i'm not like learning or or gaining knowledge that i can use in the future and then and then the part that i almost like even less than that because like for the first week you could be like oh this is kind of like cube drafting but for this you know this format but then but the fact that it's then mixed in with the normal non-bot packs that eventually come along means for then another few days at least, you just like don't know if your opponents or opponents' decks are doing well because they're like a fairly drafted deck or they're a bot pack deck, or like you still get these weird packs and you're not sure like why you're still seeing like a broker sixth pick or something and it's just like it just makes everything so random and screwy and i don't know i just like i don't i don't understand why why it happens i guess it like it makes non-drafters want to draft for a week but i don't know how many of them are then continuing to draft and then it's it feels to me like it's making all your drafters just very frustrated so like it's it, it doesn't, like, I just feel like on the cost-benefit analysis, there's not enough benefit for how much uh, mental anguish it's costing me. What, what do you think they could do instead of uh, of the system that they're using where they just pick, do random picks for the first seed? I mean, I don't know. I like, the problem is we don't really know how they're doing it. It just feels to me like bot drafting is a sort of a solved thing. Like, there's probably half a dozen ways you can bot draft Magic the Gathering and have it be, like, a reasonable experience. You know what I mean? Like, and the designers at Direwolf Digital are all very good drafters and very smart people. Like, I feel like even a a pick order would, you know, if a bot just drafted to pick order, it would be a better experience than what we're currently having. I mean, they could they could wait like uh, they could wait rares higher than uncommons and then higher than commons and then yeah. have the have have the the bots try to pick two faction decks and then that would be the whole thing and it would at least give you a shot at having the format settle down you know soon rather than yes. taking like two weeks yeah. it seems I mean, like it wouldn't take like an advanced ai to to make it a little bit better I, I don't know what their system is as far as what their bots do but like you said it's not i don't know if it's public knowledge but i kind of assume that the way that they do it is that each the bots that they use may have like certain characteristics like they may have um the 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 mono fire timmy bot you know that likes fire cards and ignores everything else and then maybe they have the uh justice time bot that picks you know that's that's what it looks towards that way it, it feels like closer to a person drafting which inevitably isn't 
<laughs> leads doesn't lead the person picks, but I, I assume that they just use like preference spots over any formula, like pick the rare or try to pick this statistically best card. That that was my assumption of how they they operate. I would like to think that that's what they do. <laughs> I what I think I they actually do what, what is, is actually? that the bot picks completely randomly, just gives equal weight to every card in every pack, and then they trust the players to smooth the packs out over time. I think that's what they actually do it could be without any other evidence. I would yeah. love well, it. Just... If, I would love it if they had simple bots that had preferences and tried to draft certain kinds of decks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they do that. That maybe I'm being hopeful. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're more optimistic than I am. <laughs> <laughs> I think that Direwolf has its focus elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, and I just feel like I mean, obviously, they don't find it worth it because this has been like a known issue for many many sets now but it actively discourages me from playing eternal for for a while afterwards yeah but uh but i but i will i mean i'll give them credit for for restoring the card quality in the in the curated draft packs this time around you know it's not like they're putting zero effort in but it would just be a whole whole a whole chunk of design to program intelligent bots for the beginning of a new draft format um, and I think their focus just is on designing cards, essentially. Yes. No, I agree. And I, and like I said, this was all a preface to, to my draft week, which I've been having a lot of fun since I, I restarted drafting. Um, I've been, I don't know if I've figured it out. I've had kind of a really up and down week. It feels more like how my drafting used to go, where I'd go... Seven wins, zero wins, seven wins, zero wins. Because um, I, I haven't been getting a lot of zero win drafts up until this new change. And so of my drafts, I like I, I got two seven wins in a row with just very strong sort of rare based decks. Um, it was a, a film deck and then a really strong Praxis deck. Then I drafted what I thought was a really strong Combray deck and went 0-3 with it. It, well, it felt very strong, at least equally strong as my two seven win decks. And then it went 0-3. Then I had a very bad Combray deck that went 3-3. Then I forced Mono Fire because I was so angry. And then <laughs> that went 7-2 and was a great deck. And then I went 0-3 with a really good Stone Scar deck. And now I'm back with a medium Combray deck and I'm 5-2 uh, right now. <laughs> Was that fire deck the one that had like four copies of, of most of the cards in it? And so it was just this very short deck list. <laughs> it was, yes. Love, that. <laughs> Love when that and happens. It, and it's funny because it actually had I had a fifth copy of um both uh Burning Core Drake and Granite Acolyte, but it just that seemed too that seemed too excessive. So so I went down to four of each. And um and that was a great deck. That was so much fun. Yeah. I killed multiple people by having um, that Yeti that deals one damage when you play a unit, and then just playing like Corrosive Dagger into Corrosive Dagger. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, so love that synergy. Yes. Yeah, that does sound like fun. I've That's never it. seen that in a, in a game before, and I've had a lot of Corrosive Daggers played against me, but I haven't seen that particular thing. 
That's good. I'm glad that I haven't seen that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. unlikely to draft it, so I'm glad that I haven't seen it. Yeah, I I guess we'll talk more about this uh, later on, but I did want to... I think fire is kind of an interesting topic while we're talking about fire decks, because we we were kind of discussing this offline hats it um or at earlier a couple days ago and you're like well, how do you even get into a mono fire deck and and when you like look at the the fire commons and uncommons in the draft packs which are the packs that you see first it's like really hard to figure out how you get into mono fire besides being like i'm going to force mono fire and then just pick all the fire cards and then you just end up with a surprisingly end, even though prob- just about every single choice was probably wrong to do because <laughs> you're just like sure. forcing yeah. it no matter what. But the the cards just work so well together. And I think people are under drafting fire that even if you're like, you know, even though there are stronger cards in like every single pack, you just end up with, a surprisingly good deck at the end. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's been your experience, Tyler. Yeah, yeah, it's similar. <clears throat> I think I think the best way to walk into any mono faction deck really is like let's let's say you get you make it through pack one, and I mean this could be specific to fire, but this could be specific to any color. But let's say you walk through pack one, and you know eight eight of your twelve cards are a concentrated faction. So that's when you need to be like that's around the time when going into pack two you need to be like I have I have eight cards and one faction let's just let's just go for it and then you you know pick like you were saying pick the worst pick just to make the more concentrated deck and with with fire it, it is interesting I think the way specifically with fire that you may hedge towards moving into a mono fire deck would would probably be I mean. I guess you open a fire rare in the first pack, like maybe a Ragnar or maybe you get like seer, two seer or something. You're like seer, seer. And you're just like, okay, it's mono fire today. It, yeah. it is interesting because the, the high, the hot payoff cards for mono fire come in the second and third pack. So you're kind of banking on, well, there is also fire conjuring at a, at 10 X in the first and fourth pack, which is, a uh, you know, for a deck that wants to make a little bunch of little rustlings, it's it's very helpful. Like Hats was saying, you could there's not a lot of things to if you're playing as fire and they have a fast interaction, you can assume that it's probably either a burn spell or an anthem effect. So I guess if you end up getting a, even like a small concentration of those types of effects in the first pack, you're you would be willing to be all in on it at that point. Yeah, that's kind of what happened with my mono fire deck is I the my pack one pick one i opened a tattoo dragon so i picked that and then pack or pick two it was like a bunch of like medium cards and then there was like a burning core drake in it and it was probably not the best card in the pack but the pack wasn't great but i was like well i really want to play my tattoo dragon so i picked the burning core drake and then pick three four and five all also had burning core drakes in it (laughs) <laughs> and at that point, I just stopped looking at all the other cards in the pack and was more or less just picking fire cards. Um, but I don't even know if that was right. Like, I don't know if Mono Fire was the best. I mean, I, Fire was not open at all 
in pack two and three, even though I got four corrosive daggers. It was weird. It was like a weird draft. And so my whole deck was more or less from pack one and pack four, except I got four corrosive daggers. I mean, that sounds like it'll do it. Sounds but pretty then, scary. But, but then it worked. Um, yeah. All well, right. That's a, the one card that you really want to see if you're in that position. Yeah. The other the other fire cards in packs two and three are can be good, but they're not on that level if you're in mono fire. So yeah. 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 Worked out. All right. So we'll move on to announcements here. So uh, this is where we plug the Patreon at patreon.com slash farming eternal, uh, where you can support the show by donating a little bit of money each month. Um, so as always, we like to thank everyone who does take the time to do this um, and help support the show. So thank you to Cotillion, Loki Trickster, Sigma Tank, Mercurial Blue, Abednego, Meagles, Madness, Parmalee, Darth Herman 2, Twin Hex, Jed the Homrid, Raven Dragon, Esrit0215, Sunblaze, Worked on Sun, and Yistout. Thank you once again for supporting the show. Thank you, everybody. Yeah. So uh, this week, we're going back. Uh, no card of the week, but we're, we do have a question of the week. And uh, this question is from longtime listener, probably not the biggest fan of the show, but probably the person that has listened to the show the most, and that is Patamaro. And uh, the question he asked <laughs> is, so we have two amazing drafters on the show this week, uh, Hats on Lamps and Tyler Cheney, John Avon in-game. In and uh, he wants to know, and I'm just assuming gender here, uh, so I guess they want to know, what do you think it is that makes you a top five drafter? And like, what do you think you do better than everyone else that like allows you to month after month get into the top five? I would say something that, helps me is that i'm a more traditional magic drafter so i'm much less greedy in my deck construction i i know that just from hearing chat suggestions for picks day after day and don't get me wrong i go on crazy fun adventures listening to chat but um people are just really really greedy like i feel like for in set set eight for example it was really easy to be three color but you probably would have better results if you wasn't just splashing every single draft and, and adopted some form of consistency uh, as far as deck construction goes. Um, I think people are just too greedy. I, I think it's it's common that you in it's common in eternal that there's these really the games go longer, so it feels easier to play these really sweet six cost cards, seven cost cards. You know, maybe maybe one eight cost card if you're daring, <laughs> but. I feel like people are just a little bit too greedy, and then when I'm building a more a more wholesome deck, and you know maybe not picking the strongest card, I'm picking the best card for my deck. Just that that little level of consistency may you know boost my win rate one or two percent or something three percent, which mm -hmm. that's like one edge certainly I have from deck building. Um, I mean I don't think I'm the best drafter in Eternal, but I also don't think there is the a best drafter. I mean, how do you how do you say someone is the absolute best in a, in, in a game that is probability based? I don't think you can. Um, as far as gameplay goes, uh, I feel like I have a decent grasp on game state awareness. As far as going, I mean, I think and I think that's room something I could improve on. Everyone could improve on. As far as like, I think people are more. 
out in on specific interactions and specific plays. But if if your mind your mind is more on how do I win this game or what is my plan right now opposed to what is the best play this turn, you're going to have a higher win percentage because if you can see how you can win the game, it may it will drastically alter the choices that you make turn by turn opposed to if you just make the best turn every time. You might walk into a situation where, oh, well, I walked in, I played good, I played the best I could, but you didn't walk into a game state that gave you the option to win as frequently. That's my general opinion on limited across several games. That that would that would say that's what helps me do well. Those two things is not being as greedy and focusing on game state awareness opposed to focusing on the best pick or the best play every time. Mm-hmm. So do you feel like on average, like when you're playing, you look at other people's like, do you I know besides for just chat, but like when you're playing, do you feel like you are drafting the better deck? Is that like a thing that you you feel confident about? Like I can outdraft a lot of the players I'm going to be seeing in the queues. I mean, as long as I'm not playing against, you know, users like consistently like. Hats on lamps and Patamaru. I would say that <laughs> I would say that given sometimes yes, it, but it also is tilting to me because it's tilting to me on the same regard because I have like this you know this very defined strong set of fundamentals, and then I play against somebody and lose when they get their their one game where they're like six drop six drop six drop seven drop seven drop and I'm just like. Pfft, Okay, it worked against me this time, but it's so tilting to me because I know that that's not right. You know? Right. But it, but yeah, I would say in even in that situation, I would be like, your deck is bad, but um, good for you. You did it. I'm proud of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you build. Um, you mentioned this um, sort of drafting, sort of fundamental or conservative decks because. I, I listen to like a lot of magic podcasts. So I don't draft magic a lot, but I listen to a lot of magic podcasts. And I feel like that's one of the biggest differences between magic and eternal is just how greedy, more greedy and more big people at least feel like you can draft eternal. It's like really interesting to hear hosts of magic podcasts when they're like discussing picks and stuff and be like, oh, I don't think we can take this because we already have a single five drop and and like that's and a lot of eternal decks you know i mean like in this set we have five cost matters theme and Mm -hmm. so you'll just have a deck with like six plus five drops and then i feel like that is just a thing that can never happen in magic and it's a little confusing to me on whether like there's it's like people doing it wrong or whether there's just like, that's a fundamental difference between magic and eternal. I mean, it is kind of because the game, there's more starting health. So on average, your games are going to go longer and Mm -hmm. you're going to play more of those five, six, fives and sixes. So I do think that between comparing the two games that you do have freedom to play a couple more, but not like six more, seven more, you know, how many ever like, that's where I think people make have a misstep is they take it too far. Like, I'm going to put six disappears in my deck. No, 
<laughs> you're going to have draws where you have four disappears after mulliganing to six because all your hands were unplayable. But some games, it's going to feel really good when you're like six, turn six disappear, turn seven disappear, and so on, you know? Yeah. All right, hats. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Same question? <laughs> yeah, so what do you think makes you a top, uh, top five drafter? Well, it's hard because my memory is uh, very short, uh, and so it's hard to remember what it was like when I was a top five drafter. But it wasn't that long ago. I was in contention for for rank one, like not not long ago. I don't remember when that was. Last month, I guess. <laughs> not very long ago at all. It feels like a and very for long time. A very ago. long time. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, when I'm when I'm playing well, I think what what I'm doing well. Uh, this may be a little bit abstract and not helpful, but maybe I, I trust my instincts um, on what uh, on what cards are genuinely helping me and what cards are just generally considered good cards, um, but may not be helpful in the specific deck that I'm drafting. Uh, and I can feel that when I'm not drafting as well, is that I'll rely on my internal sort of rating of cards. Uh, that's formed partly by me and partly by the community, um, and I won't trust it quite as much as as the part of me that is that is saying this is what I need for this deck. Uh, just today, I had uh, a deck with a couple of Chain Whip Bludgeoners in it, and I didn't cut them because Chain Whip Bludgeoner is a good card, a quote good card, and. I knew that the deck was going to be winning in the air if it was going to be winning at all, that I didn't have enough backup for a ground attack-based deck. But I didn't want to cut the bludgeoners because I didn't want to think any harder than I already had about <laughs> which cuts I should be making. And so I had these almost useless chain whip bludgeoners uh, that I was starting out nearly every game with that weren't as good as my opponent's two drops. And so I just got overrun several times in a row. Um, what I really needed was a really strong ground defense, no matter what I formed that out of uh, play. I had like an Eager Shepherd that I didn't play because it's, quote, not as good a card as Chain Whip Bludgeoner. And I, I just should have played it because <laughs> it would fit in with the strategy that I had. I had three uh, brood broodmates, uh, you know, the three, three flyer for four. Um, and uh, the, the whole strategy should have been about getting those broodmates in. Um, it was a little bit of a train wreck draft, so I was also splashing for Marsh Dragons. Uh, but like, I figured if you should have been just like, there, that's five cards out of my whole deck. Is is uh, is there's five dragons? Those are how I'm going to win every single game. And so the whole focus should be drawing to them and surviving until I play them and keeping them alive if possible. Um, but uh, but the part of me that was just like, I don't want to think that hard about how to build the deck with all of the my available two drops, uh, ended up keeping the chain with bludgeoners in and not playing some other stuff that would have focused on that one strategy. So when I'm when I'm a top five drafter, I make those kind of hard decisions. I'm cutting cards that other people would consider good or that I would consider good most of the time for the sake of a, a coherent strategy in my deck. Um, and also trusting my instincts even when they are the minority opinion in the general community of drafting. Like there's certain cards that I think are good that I will see in chat while I'm watching stream um, that everyone kind of disagrees about. 
like uh, and I or vice versa. And I, I feel like unless I really see evidence in the games that I'm playing that I'm wrong about a card, that I uh, that I've got to stick to my guns uh, in my own mind, even though I'm not like streaming and influencing people with my opinion now, uh, I still need to to kind of um, kind of influence myself in a sense, <laughs> kind of like give myself advice and then also take it rather than saying, well, I had a thought there, but I'm probably wrong because everyone else thinks the opposite. So I'll, I'll just I'll squash it for now. Uh, so there's that. Um, trusting instincts is very important for me. And uh, I think that's actually a thing that everyone can do, even if they don't realize that their instincts are good. Uh, is you observe like how your cards function in a game, and then, um, and then sometimes against your own best interests, you won't change your mind about cards, even if you see them performing, overperforming or underperforming time after time. Uh, and I think it's healthy to really be honest about what you're observing and what you think might be good doesn't really work. Maybe it's just in this format or just in general and change your mind about that. So I think that's the other thing. Both of those are really abstract. Trust your instincts and change your mind if necessary. Um, I mean, those are good points. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, no, I agree with I, everything you're saying. I think what's interesting is both of you sort of went immediately to uh, your, your sort of deck building prowess. Um, as what gives you an edge, and uh, to me, that's that's very interesting to hear. Um, uh, well, you know, because I, yeah. go ahead. Sorry. No, you thought. Please. I, I was just going to say real quick that uh, I mean, as a general thing, we're playing card games are inherently random. So, really, the 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 space the space to leverage your your skill, we'll say, is everything that happens outside of the games themselves. Like, that's where you leverage your skill in general. Like, play skill, yes, is un undoubtedly important. And having a very small error rate is, is very important. And being focused and playing it, you know, at your peak performance is important. But the real, in, in limited environments, the real the real room to leverage your knowledge is out, is everything that happens outside of the game. So, like, like Hats is saying, you know, don't just listen to what everyone else says is good. If your heuristics say this card is good, and your experience says this card is good. You know, make that choice, and the construction and and the, and the liking. It's that that's where the the room to leverage skill is in limited is like I say everything outside of the game. And then once you're done with that, you know, you, you just kind of see how it goes. You know, hope it goes well. Yeah, um, there are. There, there, there is a certain amount of uh, of play skill in the games, but I do think it's. I, I agree with Tyler that it's limited compared to the draft portion because there's so much going on in every choice um, when you're drafting, especially in a format like this where there's so many uh, playable cards. The choices I think are much more uh, consequential every single one. So. Um, what you do there, and also because you're going to end up with so many playables at the end of a draft, as long as you, uh, as long as you commit somewhere, uh, <laughs> as long as you commit Sorry. fairly early to what you're going to be playing, uh, you're going to have to make a lot of cuts, and so all of those cuts are consequential as well. Um, and uh, the way Eternal games actually play out is occasionally you'll have. Uh, some kind of a blowout because you made a much better decision than your opponent. But most of the time, it's because you had a card in your hand that your opponent 
couldn't realistically deal with. Like if you've got a uh, um, what what is the hunter's thing? The the shadow Maybe card. Oh no, okay. No, the shadow card that midnight hunt. Quick midnight hunt. If you've got a midnight hunt in your hand and a fair amount of shadow on the board, you're going to wreck your opponent to some degree. And a good player will keep themselves from being wrecked uh, badly, but you're going to wreck them at some point. And the reason is that you put midnight hunt in your deck, <laughs> and, and you have and you have sure. and you have units that will benefit from it. Like there's a certain amount of illusion to play skill during a game. Like because you, it's like it feels like oh they baited me into you know falling for this trick, but they had the trick and there was no way to avoid it. You know they drew it, um, and the 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 difference between playing a card really really well and a card and playing a card pretty well or even badly is is usually not that great. It comes down to what you put in your deck and what you draw. Uh, so, which and one of those things is entirely up to you, and one of those is completely random. I, I like that. I think you guys did a great job answering that. You know, because what's one of the things hats that's always uh, interested me is, you know, you unlike I, I guess you unlike what a lot of people I think imagine, like top card game players are like you don't just play card games you like a lot of different games you play a lot of different games you've always played a lot of different games and yet you are really 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 good at eternal and it's always it's always been interesting to me because it's you know the reason you're really good at eternal is not because all you've ever done is play card games and hone that skill to like an unbelievable degree and I feel like your answer kind of goes along with that because I feel like drafting and deck building are sort of are much more abstract concepts than play skill, which is a little bit more sort of rote memory and like card reading and kind of like that as compared to like, you know, deck building and drafting, which like you said, you know, like we're saying is more abstract and it's sort of you're trying to build a whole, like, you know, um, Tyler used this analogy last week, you know, you're, you're, you're more of like sculpting clay into a final product, which I feel like is a, a general skill that's applicable to multiple games, not just card games, which is maybe, you know, I don't know. I see a connection in my head. I don't know if that's coming across in the words I'm using, but that's kind of interesting to me. Well, I think I think the benefit, and I do play Eternal better when I'm playing less Eternal. If I'm if I'm paying attention to other parts of my life or playing other games, and when I come back to Eternal, I I definitely uh, play better on average than if I'm just sort of grinding Eternal. Grinding Eternal does not work for me, but also I'm wired that way. Even when I was streaming Eternal, I couldn't play, uh, I couldn't stream for longer than about two hours without getting really uh, uncomfortable. Um, and I know uh, I, I think that's different from person to person because Tyler, you can stream for ninety six hours at a time <laughs> happily. <laughs> I wouldn't say happily, man. But, but I can happily doing it, but I'm never. I'm not always happy. I'm all over the spectrum. I'm yeah, all over sure. the spectrum on my streams. You can see me cussing. You can see me laughing. You can see me happy. It's just it is what it is, man. Card games. Card games throw me for a loop. Yeah. Uh, but I think the benefit of doing other things and then playing Eternal for me is that it 
it puts my brain in a mode where I see unusual patterns and unusual connections, which I think is really helpful when building a, a good limited deck because that deck didn't exist before and you're making it for the first time. Um, and it's definitely valuable to know archetypes uh, to, and, and to be able to sort of replicate a certain style of deck. But since you don't always get to do that and things don't always totally go your way, it's very helpful to see the potential to build new things and then succeed with them. And I'm a lot better at that if I have kind of a div diverse set of interests than if I'm just sort of grinding eternal and, and trying to build the same kind of decks over and over again. That makes sense because, I mean, you're much less likely to question your own heuristics, heuristics or like the standards, we'll say, if you're just in a rut. But if if you frequently can see the game from a fresh perspective, you're going to question things opposed to just assuming that something's good and, and doing it over and over and over and over again because things aren't just, you know, absolutely good or bad. Like They might be good for a week, bad for a week, and if if you come to it with a fresh mindset like often, I feel like just revisiting revisiting the initial questions of like, is this card or good or do I need this or do I not need this is uh, useful or like positive even. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, we answered this question to your satisfaction. Yeah, I, I think uh, this Padamaru uh, person is gonna, I think they will get a lot out of this answer. Great. I'm glad to well, hear it. Thanks for the question, Padamaru, wherever yeah. you may be. And thanks for listening to every single episode multiple times every week. <laughs> and thanks for being our editor. <laughs> All right. So let's move on to the seven win run breakdown. Um, so this is our longstanding data collection project here at Farming Eternal that Tyler learned about last week where our listeners mail us their seven win drafts to farmingeternal at gmail.com or post them to the seven win channel of the Farming Eternal Discord as either exported deck lists or any kind of Eternal Warcry link. And then we put it in a spreadsheet and we do a little bit of analysis on that and talk about it on the show. And as always, thank you to John Holio for doing all the work. Um, so new contributors this week are Gordon Freeman, thank you. And then our veteran contributors, we have Abednego, A-Boss, Alabazoo, Celtic Guardian 7, Collector, Cotillion, Darth Herman 2, D-Dubs, Gunner 116, Hats on Lamps, Ip Longno, Jed the Homrid, John Avon, Tyler Cheney on stream, John Holio, Mancio 1982, Out on a Limb, Adamaro, Steve Irwin, Tempest Dragon King, Toucan, Vader, and Who Does That? A couple observations to lead us into our main topic, which will be actually talking about the changes that happen in this format. So we've gotten about 70 decks so far. Yeah, 70 exactly um, decks so far. And the things that popped out to me um, so far, and this is a pretty small sample size, but not totally insignificant, is so far Justice has appeared the least of any color in our seven win decks. Uh, which is a complete role reversal from the last format where it was by far the most drafted color in set 9.5. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if that holds or if there's something about switching the draft pack order or the, the boosted commons and uncommons that are sort of holding justice down a little bit. Uh, 
So time and shadow are currently our number one and number two color. And then the other things uh, I wanted to talk about are the top three color pairs. Um, Stone Scar is on top uh, with 11 of the 70 or so decks being Stone Scar decks. Then uh, the next two are Praxis, Fire Time, and Xenon, both have nine decks. So the Stone Scar has sort of been with us through all the formats, all three iterations of this as being a pretty strong deck, while Praxis and Xenon uh, were doing really well in the original set nine, then kind of dropped off and now seem to be doing well again. So this is all sort of very preliminary data, but just wondering what you guys thought of this, if it sort of lines up with what you've been thinking about in this format or seeing out there. Uh, Tyler, how about you? When, how does that sound to you? Um, it, sound, it sounds accurate. Um, well, I mean, just based on the sheer number of fire-based decks that I've been seeing on ladder for the last week, I'm not surprised that there, you know, it is contributing to multiple factions in the top. Um, I think that's everyone's go-to base color at this moment is probably like some sort of fire deck, like whether it be Mono Fire, Praxis, or Stone Scar. Um, other things on there, I'm I'm actually really surprised about the justice. The justice being the least common because I don't think it's any weaker than it was personally. But yeah, yeah, I mean it sounds about right. Fire is is dominate like fire. The fire commons are dominating right now. What's kind of interesting is the 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 deck that we had been seeing a lot and are now seeing more or less none of is Rakano. Um. And I'm not sure if there's a reason or or whether that'll hold up, but I feel like that's where fire's losing a lot. You know, right now only three of our decks are Rakano, so four percent of our decks are Rakano, as compared to, you know, before it was in the ten to fifteen percent range. Um, so we were we had a lot of Rakano decks. It could also be um, the fact that there is less ten X boosted. Uh, uncommons at the just at ju for justice in the curated packs if if i'm understanding this correctly it's which may mean that without people seeing like very power without people seeing powerful um pushed uncommons in the first pack they're less likely to walk into it so maybe an explanation for justice not having the general support that it has had before is that Maybe it's not that it's worse. I mean, it could be, could be that it's worse. But maybe it's just that since the offering rate is a little lower, less people are walking into it, so less people are giving it a shot, thus less results. That that could be it, you know. Yeah, I can definitely see that. It kind of has like what we were talking about at the beginning of the show, uh, sort of that fire problem where it's like really hard. You know, even most of the power in justice is in pack two and three. But it can also be hard to like find yourself coming out of pack one in justice, and therefore you're just like less likely to ju draft justice overall. Uh, could be a thing that's happening. People could just be bored of justice by, yeah, by yeah. now. You know. Yeah, it could be. In all honesty, I know you've had a few streams. You've had a few no justice streams. Yeah, so. for sure. I was in set eight, <laughs> nine point five. I was so 
so sick of 50% of my opponents playing Huru or Justice-based decks that for like two days, I just was said on this stream, maybe it was three days, I don't know, but for a couple of days, we did not pick Justice pack picks just just so I could maybe, maybe show some people that you don't have to do it. There is other options, and we were successful, so... Yeah, definitely burnt on the justice-based decks. Though I don't, I still think they're very powerful. Cypher Paladin into Paladin, Caravan Guard still ten out of ten in this format, regardless of stats. Hundred percent agree. Well, I think that leads us into our our main topic here. And so, the first thing we kind of wanted to do is, I think, kind of just give a list of maybe the top commons that stand out to us that are 10x boosted um, in all the colors and a couple of the uncommons that are boosted that we maybe want to look out for when opening up our pack ones now to see, you know, to help us read signals and stuff. And then we'll just maybe talk about some archetypes that we've been having success with or, you know, one of the things um, uh that I really liked that you talked about last week, Tyler, is you kind of mentioned how when we're talking about set one, you're like, there felt like there were only about four archetypes. And I really liked how you kind of were able to boil down set one to like its very essence. And so I'm kind of interested to see if you have a, a similar feeling about uh, this current set, whether you feel like it can sort of be boiled down in the same way that you felt set one could. But uh, before we get to that, let's sort of talk about uh, the 10x boosted commons. All right, so we'll start with fire. So Tyler, what what are some cards that stand out to you or that you're excited to see in the packs? Uh, I look so I looked over the list earlier of I just wanted to reinforce what there was. Um, but something I'm always happy to see, and this may seem like not the best card in the world, but I'm always happy to see Granite Drone as as like a fire common. Because it, it, it is an enabler for multiple archetypes and strategies. So, for instance, you know, it's two power. It's, it's two power worth of units or two attack worth of units for one resource. Um, but it's also two bodies. So, it enables, like, an aggressive strategy. It actually en enables lots of strategies. It, it enables, like, an early play for an aggressive deck. Um, it, it enables, like, fodder for a sacrifice deck. Um, it also enables multiple bodies for like a go wide type strategy. So I'm always happy to see Grandin Drone as a push common, just because it 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 has a lot of space. It, it provides a lot of space for and is playable in multiple archetypes. Um, other other notable commons, there's like two that I, I'm happy to see, and I'm sure there's more, but there's two two that I'm specifically happy to see is, uh, Burning Core Drake is, just like a good evasive, uh, fire card that can also some games give you card advantage. I'm happy to see that those are back. Um, and it has low toughness, so it's easy to deal with. So it's kind of fair in that regard, and it has to attack. Um, and, the, and then there's like the the age-old set one Granite Acolyte. Like, that's a good three-drop that has... It, it leads people to um, make decisions, because it isn't just like a three-costing four-one. You need to decide where you put the weapon. Um, if if you... What you put it on, it's a skill... It's, in some, it, since there is your choice, your cho you have forced to choose the target for the weapon. It's it's skill testing, and it pushes aggressive. It pushes it it pushes like an aggressive strategy. Those 
those are those are just like three commons. I mean, even like let's put Born Burning Core Drake together with Granite Acolyte. Like you go turn three, turn three Drake, turn four Granite Acolyte. You're hitting them for five a turn. You're, you've created a five turn clock with two commons that are boosted. It could probably win people a game on its own. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Those are I think those are three solid cards. Um, the the things that jumped out to me with fire are one. There is no natural five attack unit. Uh, the closest we have is the Thunderhoof Warrior, which is um, the four cost three, three, where you can pay five to give it plus two, plus two permanently. You pay six um, to give it plus two, plus two permanently. And it has overwhelm. Okay, fine. I don't, I don't have the card. <laughs> yeah, you... I have it in my brain. <laughs> you can pay six to give it plus two plus two permanently and it has overwhelm so that part's good but it's kind of an expensive way to um to to cheese out a win with might weaver and it doesn't and it doesn't trigger like the wisp that draws you two cards if you make a, a unit with five strength so mm -hmm. yeah then the other uh interesting um the card that's now boosted that I'm kind of interested in to hear your opinions of is uh, Blade Crafter. You know, this is an all-star from set eight where you could get uh, such bangers as uh, Shugo Hooksword and um, <laughs> what is it? Uh, Blade Edge? Edge of Prophecy. Edge of Prophecy, right. Um, but there's no real huge um, relic weapons anymore. So... How do you think Blade Crafter fits into this format? I think it fetches Corrosive Dagger real nice. Yeah, it does do that. Um, which is almost, I, I almost feel like is a, for me, it's kind of like the fact that Changey Stick can sometimes just give a unit flying and not do anything else. It's sure. like a secret mode of Blade Crafter is that it doesn't just get Relic Weapons. And I have trouble keeping that concept in my brain because I'm so used to trying to draw a giant relic weapon with it. Yeah, that was its that was its primary mode. Um, but now, I, I, there really aren't any huge relic weapons in this format that I know of. There's some medium-sized ones and some small ones. Um, but yeah, yeah, you mostly fetches... have to be in Justice. You know, Justice sort of has all the relic weapons now. Right. So it the fact that it, it picks up... Um, the, picks up a Corrosive Dagger, I think makes it a playable in, in Mono Fire, especially if it looks like that's what you're going to be playing. Is There's no there's no real downside to having that Bladecrafter option. But then, of course, if you don't have at least two weapons in your deck, then it's an easy cut. And, pro yes. and I, I prefer to have more, because I hate just uh, making a 2-2 two -two for four and then only drawing one card. But it might be worth it, might be worth it sometimes. Um, Changey Stick isn't a boosted card anymore. Otherwise, it would be an all-star if you were playing Skycrag. Yes. Um, all right, cool. Is there any cards you wanted to comment on, Hans? No, those are the those are the main ones. Um, I'm not sure how to rate Char. That's the two damage fast spell for one that Fire has. I don't know how often it's a good card in this format yet due to having not played it. Tyler, do you have a sense of how good a removal spell that is right now? I guess it, it, it's hard to rate, but I, I pick it. I think it's good because yeah. there's a fair bit of like low toughness or low health units that it targets. Um, it also can go face to counter a weapon. It's it's just I 
fast fast speed interaction, even if this is like one of the lower end fast speed interaction spells as far as value goes, just the fact that it's fast is is useful enough to know that it will be good. I, I don't know if it's a ten out of ten. I'm like the same way you are. Like I've played it plenty. It's been, you know, I've been happy with it, but uh, it's it's good. I know it's good. I just don't know. I don't think I can put a number on it if if I was being honest. Yeah, I wouldn't say that it's as high a priority to pick up as Drone, uh, Burning Core Drake, and Granite Acolyte at this point, though, because I think those are really solid threats. And uh, I know removal is supposed to be more valuable than threats, but I think in this case, those three cards. And I wanted to point out Shavka Evangel. That's the um, that's the that's the two two for two fire fire um, that uh, gains you a fire influence when you draw it, and it has Berserk. And there's times when that card is one that I'm really happy to see, um, and that's when there are there are playable weapons in the format. And I don't think there are a lot of playable unit weapons right now in this format, so I think it's unusually weak. I think there's ta- there's formats where it's a very strong card, and right now it's just sort of an average two drop. Yeah, I love the, all the evangels. I, yeah. I definitely I definitely second that. Is that being a good card to look for? Happy that they're boosted. The cycle. I'm happy that the cycle is boosted. Um, the surge can commonly be relevant. Um, I don't know if, if you guys or any of the listeners have ever been playing a um, a a big a big tom deck with with the worm at the top end, and you draw an evangel and you get to draw two for your turn before you even play play a, a sigil. Just th- there's a lot of applications being that surge is a key mechanic that makes this better, or that getting the extra fire. Um, influence like with corrosive dagger so even though there's like a maybe a distinct lack of unit weapons and maybe exalted as well um, it's still a very happy find whenever i'm in a fire and i find shot i'm in fire the fire faction i find shopka evangel agree that it's, it's not as busted as it could be but it is good yeah yes yeah and i i also think the one thing that helps this uh, Shafka Evangel is even though it's not super powerful on its own is um, because mono fire I f- tends to just like go wide and overwhelm opponents. You know it Shafka Evangel just still needs to be respected and it can sort of you know you can just sort of overwhelm your opponents with things they need to block and then. They like feel like they have to block this berserk two two because they might just die if they don't, and it kind of I don't know. It's been I guess surprisingly good in decks that are heavy fire for that reason that are like trying to be really aggressive because it like it's just like another hard choice for your opponent to make. Um, yeah, for sure. All right. So on to time, uh, Tyler. Any time cards that stand out to you? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, silences are back. <laughs> Rectifier <laughs> is back. You know, yes. We we were in a world of minimal silence for how many months? For several months there, we were like there was silence uh, effects, but now that Rectifier is back as a boost card, boosted card, you can count on. You know, you have to consider what if they have a silence. Um, another another card that people might be rusty playing against right now, and it and was even mentioned on last week's episode, hum, Humbug Nest. Humbug Nest is back. Um, 
until people are really good about playing around nest again, it's going to be blowouts in situations where there's one top, like, you know, X ones attacking and you, or maybe you get two X ones with it. Um, and it provides it for like, it provides two flying units like attackers. It, it's just, um, a multifunctional card. It can be removal. It can be, it can be, you know, your win condition in sometimes. Um, so I'm happy to see that back. I played, I played with humbug nest a, a, a very, very much in, um, set eight. So I'm happy to see that back. And then, and then, of course, uh, I'm just going to probably mention the Acolytes almost every time. Um, Amber Acolytes. So, Amber, I, I think, and we'll definitely get into this a little more later, but I think three-color Tom is just like a general... Any Tom where there's a put, Amber Acolyte is pushed, three-color Tom or four-color Tom, but in my mind, three-color Tom as an archetype is something that will exist because having natural natural fixing and card-slotted slotted fixing... Like helps lend itself to playing other colors, and even though Amber Acolyte is a three-costed two-one, the fact that it fetches a sigil of your choice um, makes makes it so that you can um, cultivate decks that are a lot more flexible and free in playing other powerful cards and other factions. You know, at less of a cost. I would say those are the commons that I'm looking at, and, and then of course there's Horn of Plenty. Yeah, time has like an interesting, a pretty interesting suite of uh 10x boosted commons there's once again no real like there's none of the time fatties here they're all pretty cheap costs i mean horde of plenty is five but it's it's also sort of a supporting you know it's there's a lot of really solid cheap units and then some good supporting cards is what i see from time like there's a lot of cards in time that i'm very excited to pick up but the time commons themselves don't necessarily like make a whole deck in above in and of themselves. There's no there's not many ways to win a game when you just like look at the time commons, which is kind of interesting to me. But I think they have a pretty solid suite of cards. Yeah, usually usually there is a big unit, at least one that you're that you're kind of encouraged to ramp up to with your amber acolytes and your trail makers. Uh, and I did want to mention that Trailmaker is a pretty gonzo card still. I, I guess Amber Acolyte uh, also fetches a, a sigil out of your deck, um, which is nice for deck thinning, and it's almost like you're drawing a card off of it. But um, I guess it's exactly like you're drawing a card off of it. Uh, but Trailmaker <laughs> uh, ramps you. It, do, it makes you... It actually it, uh, lets you play a 4-drop on turn 3, and uh, gives you an additional surge activation um in a turn uh, beyond just the sigil that you played so there's advantages to trailmaker over amber acolyte but they serve a very similar function because they both fix your influence um and so having both of those be boosted makes time really consistent at, at that strategy of of uh of enabling you to play a, a three color deck and also kind of making sure that your curve plays out um, pretty consistently game after game. How do you guys view Talir's Favored, uh, which is the uh, two cost zero two that draws a time sigil from your deck? I, w- I would say if you was, so it, it can be an enabler for like Siphon or Paladin. That was a situ- that's a situation where it may shine. If you're in Combrai and you need sack fodder, or maybe maybe you're Xena and you need sack fodder, that's where it probably shines. 
But I would say is like a general rule, rule when for me, I don't play it often, but when I assess the card, it pretty much to me says it's pretty much a two cost card that says gain three life, gain three life and draw a Tom Central from your deck. So in situations where it's that mode opposed to an enabler, it, I think it's terrible. But if it's an enabler, it can be good. Right. Yeah, I think you need enough enough ways to turn it into value, uh, usually by being able to sacrifice it in some way. Or if you're playing the the the, the four horn of plenty deck, then then <laughs> it, then it has potential <laughs> just by itself. <laughs> but uh, I think that's going to be rare uh, moving forward now that things have calmed down a little bit. Because um, usually, if I put something like to, uh, most of the, I think all of the cards uh, that are that cost to and draw a specific sigil out of your deck, like Toledo's favorite and uh, Vara's favorite and all of that. Um, I, I I don't I play them over a sigil of that uh, as as like uh, the slot in my deck because I don't want to be playing it. Like if I'm playing um, eighteen sources of power and I'm playing a Toledo's favored, then I'm going to take out one of my sigils so that I'm not playing um, uh, too many sources of power. If that makes sense, I don't know why I'm having such a hard time explaining this. I just use <laughs> I replace the sigil with those cards, and uh, so there has to be a reason for Trailmaker. Whereas with Vara's Favor, usually you can kill something with it, um, so it, it's an easier sell. Um, but if you don't have any way of sacrificing the favor, then like counting on it being able to save you a lot of life by blocking usually isn't enough of a reason to play it over a sigil. All right, so then on to Justice, Tyler. Any Justice cards you want to highlight here? Yeah, um, the, man, the two at common and justice right now, and it it is shocking to me that justice is doing so poorly statistically. <laughs> but at common, there's like so many good um, two costed cars. Like, I'll just give you four, okay? So th- these are my justice commons. At two, we have Copperhall Porter, we have Porter and Siphoner in the same in the same uh, draft, the same draft, uh, the draft format again. Awesome. I yeah. have never seen someone play a Porter on two and not follow it up with a Siphon or Paladin. I know. Copperhall <laughs> Porter might as well say, draw a Siphon or Paladin. <laughs> <and play them."> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Um, we, have, we, have, we have Willbreaker. <clears throat> you know, that's just a, a, a decent two-drop. You can play it as a two-drop, um, and it'll likely, it'll likely trade with their two-drop. Um, it has the of option of you know um, beating a humbug nest or reducing the opponent's flying threats at least somewhat. It provides two bodies. It provides two bodies as sack fodder. Um, it fills. It puts two units in the void for something like marsh dragon. Um, and, and it also scales well in the game because if you have pump effects or you have um, I mean pump effects or or weapons or exalted units, if those happen to land. Or even the next card I'm going to talk about, Siege Provisions. Um, even if, if any of these effects happen to win on land on Willbreaker, they it can make a situation where your two drop is still relevant late into the game because you know maybe they block your two big units. You're attacking with three units, we'll say. Maybe they maybe they block your two real threats and think, okay, I'll take two again from Willbreaker, and then you randomly kill them with the fourth card I'm going to mention, like Barrel Through. Boom, they 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 take eight damage. So. It's just a quality two drop. It it serves a lot of it, it functions well on a lot of different levels, and yeah. So I quickly mentioned the other two commons: barrel through. Um, that's a fine combat trick for an aggressive deck. It also fixes. It also fixes for a color, and it also surges. 
at instant like, speed. Yeah, fast. Exactly. It's fast speed surge. So it's kind of like two cost, two cost, um, pump your attacker, pump one of your attackers, maybe pump a second attacker if two, if one of your units has surge, like maybe you pump your non-surge unit and then your surge unit surges. Um, and, and it's, it is worth noting that it fixes because I don't remember when it was, but within the last week on the stream, I drafted a deck that was splashing a color and I had zero sigils of that color in my deck, but I had triple barrel through and I forget what the other natural of uh, the other card slotted fixing was. Um, but I had triple barrel through and other fixing that wasn't sigil, like that wasn't basic sigils. And it, it was it was fine. It was it was never a problem having triple barrel through to fix for it. I mean, that's not its predominant mode, but it is just worth noting that can do. And then, yeah, it's just a good, all in all good card. And it's a card that you need to learn to play around because there's not a lot of really powerful um, health boosting combat tricks in this format. So um, you need to learn to count count on playing around that card specifically. And then the fourth card is Siege Provisions, and I think this card is kind of the kind of a talking point for some people because i've seen people say that they think siege provisions is terrible and then some people think that it's just like 10 out of 10 and that common giving you something that scales well into the late game that gives you you know a possible give give your your might weaver double damaged unit and vulnerable turn and force them to jump block um or late into the game uh, provide a mana sink to pump even your smallest 1-1 flyer from Humbug Nest to, to clock them for 3 a turn. Having that card at common is, I think, very good for a format. So yeah, I have 4 on that one. The, those are 4 noteworthy ones. I mean, there, I'm sure there's even more. Those are the commons that stand out to me. Um... I mean, the other, I guess, like Kodash Evangel gets a gets a nod, but the others are not um, are more filler, I think, in Justice. Yes, I agree. They have a lot of great two drops. Um, it's really interesting because we we were just talking about this with um, Bladecrafter. Justice does have a lot of relic weapons now. Um, comp boosted a common. They have Ancient Plate Mail and Mithril Mace. Um, which are two five-cost relic weapons. Plus, they have the uh, the four-three relic weapon that gains an armor every time one of your units dies in set nine. So, so there's a lot. There's I would say too many ways to uh, too many weapons at five in yeah. injustice. Yeah, they really clustered. The the night watch night watch broadsword is definitely the better among the three that you listed. That's the four. That's the five cost four attack weapon that scales. It's yes. definitely the, the by far the best out of those three because on turn five, uh, three attack weapons just doesn't do much for me. But you know if it's it's strange because you would think that the the four damage comparative. To the three damage shouldn't change much, but when you go up one tick of damage and it's able to kill most four drops, uh, it makes a huge difference. Because if if you spend your turn five to play a weapon that kills something they played on turn three, I mean you're just not in a winning situation. That's just ugly. But if you if you spend it to kill like let's say let's talk about the upside of having a four attack. If you play it to kill their uh, smogwing tinker, then wow, you you like really won in this exchange. Because they spent six to play a four-four flyer, you spent five 
and, and removed it and then maybe developed something else. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's interesting because the, the one thing where I think you want the mythical mace is that primal does have a lot of, uh, you know, there are a lot of like three, three flyers and stuff that mythical mace is maybe slightly better against. Um, but I agree in general, I do like, uh, what was it called? The four, three weapon. I think it's Nightwatch Broadsword. I yeah, could be wrong I too. do like the Nightwatch Broadsword. It's actually the the deck that I drafted on stream last night um, was this Combray deck, and I have three Nightwatch Broadswords and three Scythner Paladins and a Jade Horn, and then um, just sort of as a throw in a throwaway pack in set four, I also there was no other cards, and I so I picked a Mithril Mace up, and I still. Even though I had three Nightwatch broadswords, I could I was like trying to figure out if I wanted to do like a two-one split. And I just felt like Nightwatch Broadsword was just like correct, you know, so much of the time that I ended up not playing the Mithril Mace. Um, Makes sense. And but it also that draft deck, the other thing I want to say, kind of highlighted to me. The fact that there were so many five drop weapons because even this deck that is like built around playing a relic weapon and then boosting it up and then killing my opponent with it like three night watch broadswords has felt like too many in a deck with like three siphoner paladins and a jade horn to boost it i just like i keep drawing i keep making a great night watch broadsword and then drawing more of them and not being able to play them or do anything. You know, relic weapons, if you're not <laughs> losing your weapon, don't stack well. And so then I'm just like drawing dead. I don't know. It's kind of so feels right. like too, too many relic weapons sort of running around in justice has been one of the problems I've been having. I just want to quickly say that Nightwatch Broadsword has resulted in some really weird play patterns for me in the past. Because it gets one armor every time one of your units dies, there have been multiple times where I've played my Nightwatch broadsword, not killed anything with it, made my attack for the turn, forcing my opponent to decide whether they want to kill, uh, like block one of my units and make my broadsword more powerful, and then attack one of their units after that attack phase with the broadsword which I've never done with other weapons, you almost always uh, you almost always attack and kill something to clear the way for your units to attack. But uh, with Nightwatch Broadsword, it feels like a mind game. <laughs> yeah. Almost. <laughs> You're like, look, at, I, it's up to you <laughs> how you suffer this turn. <laughs> would you like to have a good combat phase, but then I have a really good sword? Or would you like to have a bad combat phase? Yeah. Yeah, it, it really is a, a tricky card like that. Because even then, you like you attack all in, but then maybe you leave like a dinky chump blocker back because you're like, well, on the crackback, I just want one of my, I just want a, a guy to die, yeah, to boost my weapon so then it won't, you know, it won't die, and then you it makes your opponent's, you know, sort of crackback all complicated for them. You know, it's it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's any card in that regard. 
All right, so now on to Primal. Uh, Tyler, any cards that pop out to you in Primal? Yeah, so, I mean, there's there's definitely, there's I definitely have a few here, but there's two that really, really stand out to me as, as they, I'm very happy that they're returned and they're, they're 10x. Um, the first being Wisdom the Elders. And I think a lot of people that enjoy long, you know, grindy games are going to be happy with that because, you know, if you can afford to take the time off if you can afford to basically play an anti-tempo card or take the take the time off to get a guaranteed two cards for one card advantage, um, you're, if you're that kind of deck, Wisdom of the Elders is awesome. Um, it, it, it helps it helps makes those you know value-based decks more successful. Card draw always makes value-based decks more successful because you know you're 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 forced into a situation where you use your one-for-one removal spell on their threats over and over and over again. And if you don't have a catch-up mechanic or a card draw mechanic, a lot of times you'll walk into a situation where you can't get back into the game because you've traded, you've been forced to trade one-for-one, one-for-one, one-for-one to offset their tempo. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, I don't, I, my, my, um, my powerful weapon um, just kills one unit and then dies to dies to the rest of their attackers. So you, what you needs to happen is you need card draw like this. So I'm happy to see that back and how it supports um, value decks and grindy decks that are primal based. And then of course Brood of Aramont because just as like a classic draft archetype, any skies decks, any skies decks, and not specifically majestic skies the card, but just as a archetype of flyers, flying archetype. archetype is tradition as a very traditional archetype that is consistently powerful, and I'm happy to have a four cost, a fair, a very fair four costed three three flying common um, back at 10x. And then of course lightning strike is just a debatable card about when you should play it, but um, it's it's good removal at common, so I'm happy to see it back as well. Yeah, I think uh, Primal did pretty well. It has some weird cards like. Uh, Shiver and Reinforced Tower Shield uh, that don't do much. Um, but then it has some really good cards, uh, like the three cards you mentioned. Uh, Gale Prowler is back at uh, 10x. That really helped s- some decks in uh, in set nine, uh, where you could just kind of sit back and then just like ping people, you know, <laughs> play a spell, attack it with Gale Prowler, and then, you know, then hunker down, you know, hunker down with all your beefy blockers and then just kind of kill them in the air with Gale Prowler. Uh, there's Cobalt Acolyte to send something in the air. Uh, Wild Rider can be a pretty a pretty good unit if you get some attacks in. Uh, Master Cartographer, uh, you know, as a looter helps, can really mm-hmm. help uh, your early game kind of get through your deck, add velocity. So I'm pretty happy with Primal. Primal um the primal cards here and feel like this really helps Thelm as an archetype because there's just like a lot of value you know there's there's some you know there's good removal there's some value cards like wisdom of the elder and then there's some ways to win the game with brood of aramot and uh, and gale prowler and master cartographer to smooth your draws so i'm excited for primal once again in this set in this format me too yeah, I like. Uh, I've I've had some some success with Felm in this format, and I've been up against some really strong Felm decks. Uh, I think more than just sort of average 
more than more than the average uh, format, certainly more than the last format where Shadow was so neutered. So yeah, um, I I have questions about how good Cobalt Acolyte is because you'd think that it would always be an awesome pick. Uh, it's a two one for three that can make any can give anything flying, including itself. I think the lack of huge ground units in this format makes Cobalt Acolyte kind of an awkward card sometimes. Obviously, it's great sometimes, but I'm re- very rarely in a primal deck where I have a bunch of big ground units that want to go in the air, oddly enough. I know that it happens, um, but uh, I've, I've ended up with too many of them, so now there's a limit on the number that I want to actually put in my deck, and it definitely depends on how many legitimate targets they have. That's, that's yeah, that definitely me. rings true to me. It's not like set one where you would just like you would play five Cobalt Acolytes if you got them. Um, I do think, you know, the big one that comes to mind is is the bear, the five cost three three imbue overwhelm bear. You know, you put that in the air after it's imbued something and and you're probably winning the game in short order. But you can like we we're saying, you can only play so many five drop bears in your deck and therefore you really can only play so many cobalt acolytes because there's just not not that many big beefy units in this format. I think it's I think it's cobalt acolytes best use in a way is um is to is in a deck where you have a lot of strong two drops that want to keep attacking for the whole game and then you know you send something like a flame heart patroller into the air and it's going to do a lot of damage over the course of the game. Yeah. Or like a Crown yeah. Watch Paladin. Crown Watch Paladin, exactly. Uh, Chain Whip Bludgeoner, or uh, or the or the Shadow Dude that grows the two two that gets plus one plus one every time it connects. Yeah, Lurking Brute, definitely. I mean, even Wild Rider. I mean, that's not a two cost unit, but you put that in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's some good targets for it. Yeah, they're but just, there's no not like your huge typical monsters. Big beefy guy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right, and then finally, Shadow. Any Shadow cards speak to you, Tyler? Yeah, for sure. I I think that um, if anyone has experienced this format yet, which I imagine if you're listening to a draft-oriented podcast, you've probably played a couple of drafts. Um, I'm sure you guys have noticed the presence of Marsh Dragon in the format as a whole. Yeah, I feel like Marsh Dragon coming back, and it's, it's very splashable. And it, this is a five-cost card, and it, this is... I mean, most of the cards I've mentioned are early character cards, but at, at a five-cost, very powerful common, I think that's a good a good card to have in the format. Um, it, it pairs well with the recovery mechanic the same way, a sim, in a similar fashion that Wisdom of the Elders does. Um, it's not necessarily card advantage, but it helps you uh, have, have a recovery in your deck. I'm happy to see that back. And the other two is Ameth- uh, Amethyst Acolyte. That's a good three-drop. And cut ties is a good removal spell at six, just as like a clean answer to something. Um, but after extensively playing mono mono shadow yesterday, I think there is a lot to note that, it, in my opinion, I feel like mon- that shadow in general in this format is the weakest base color you can possibly have. But it is a great splash color or secondary supporting color. Because a lot of the cards that are good in this faction aren't early in the game, and it has you know it has a lot of removal, and removal is obviously very important if you can like facilitate a splash for it. 
Um, yeah, but it's worth noting to, after forcing Mono Shadow for like six hours yesterday on stream that it is not, it is by far, in my opinion, the weakest of the colors, but a very, very, very good splash or supporting color. Yes. Yeah, I, I could see that. Yeah, Cut Ties is like an always an interesting card to me because, you know, it's like probably in the draft packs, one of the, the best, or you know, the only there's not that many boosted common removal spells. You know, there's lightning strike and cut ties, more or less. I guess char, but like cut ties, I always struggle with how many of them you can play in a deck. You know, now that it's boosted, you can get sometimes three or four cut ties, but. It's like, how many are you realistically able to play anyway? And so it always makes it hard for me to figure out when I should be picking them or how many I should be picking. Um, and with right now, all the all the mono fire aggro decks running around, you know, you can look really silly when you're dying to someone who plays a couple uh, corrosive daggers and you have two cut ties in your hand. Yeah, you can look pretty foolish when someone is already has eight units on the board and you're still not at six power. Definitely can look foolish. I think that's another side effect of not having a lot of big, beefy uh, units in the format is that cut ties is just worse. Yes. The other kind of cute thing is uh, not a great card, but in Primal, you know, there is Ice Bow, and Felrock's Infiltrator does add another deadly unit for that cute little deadly ice bow synergy so now you have the the reaper the three cost one one flyer and the infiltrator and shadow if that's your if you're into cute synergies it's there people will do it yeah all right and then the other big thing to help with all the fixing there is a unfamiliar interloper and seek power are both boosted so i think uh fixing this is not a fixing like light format. Interloper and Seek Power really make it easy to to get greedy, and so you have to be disciplined. Because <laughs> Interloper is not a powerful card by itself, you know. Like it really is an enabler, um, and uh, you're you're sacrificing something to play a one one, and uh, uh, so you have to have a purpose for it. But if you do find yourself in a position where where fixing is going to help you play a couple of really powerful cards, then then Interloper is a great way to do it. Yes. I do think that's a, like, Interloper can kind of be a trap in that way, where it's one of those cards where people, everyone knows it's a powerful card, and then because it's a powerful card, you're like, oh, you have to put this in your deck. But it's it's a powerful card because it can enable you to do things. And if you're not doing those things, it's not a good card. Yeah. It's not powerful by itself. It's a one, one for two. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's the opposite of a powerful card. And like, I've had that situation come up where I'm like, I really should just like, feel like I should cut this interloper because my influence isn't an issue in this deck. And I don't have a way to sack or make use of the second body. So like, why would I play a two cost one one in the stack? Um, yeah. So I think it that's does... a question you should be asking yourself when you're putting an interloper in your deck or looking for cuts in decks that otherwise have 
already good power. It does activate surge by itself, and and sometimes it does it twice. So that's that's another factor. Yes, that is very true. I think there's uh, one more card that we should note. We should note, and it's funny to this is so among the among the two faction boosted commons. There's only one card that I wrote down, and it's funny that that aligns with the factions that you say is doing the best statistically, and that is combust in stone scar, like. That's the only card that I felt that was worth noting. Out of like the other ones are are decent, but combust is boosted, and it's uh, compare for example compare compare combust to cut ties. It yeah you have to sacrifice a, a unit, but it costs five less to do the same effect. And I mean that's just it's a deal, right? That's a deal. Sac- there's sacrifice. a lot of there's a lot of good fodder for it too. What with granite and drone. Uh, being boosted and and granite acolyte and a lot of other cards that can give you some value before you sacrifice them to combust. Yeah, yeah sure. interloper, <laughs> interloper, and inter- interloper for sure. Although inter, oh, I mean, yeah, if you're, uh... yes, interloper. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay, fine. Are you saying you shouldn't put interloper in your aggressive stone scar deck? Is that that's what basically what I was going to say? But I wasn't sure if like combust yes. is a good card even if you're not playing an aggressive deck. So. But to to go back to Interloper for just a second, I have pr- I agree that you should cut it more than you should play it because it's a two costing one one. I I've got flamed on stream so many times for cutting Interloper when everyone's telling me I should be playing them when it's not a deck that should play an Interloper. No, yeah. I I a hundred percent agree. If you if you already have a solid power base and you're like a two color deck or whatever. I mean, there are a few cards, you know, like all of the corrupted units, you know, make like Nightwatch Broadsword better because you can, you know, you can pay the corrupted cost if it dies and then, you know, boost your weapon. It's, you know, or there's, there are, like you said, there's Marsh Dragon now. So there are, there's Siphoner Paladin. So there definitely are synergies with the corrupted units um, that you should take into account with interloper beyond just the influence but i think in general i agree it this is definitely a card you should think more about whether your deck needs it all right so we'll move to the boosted uncommons and uh go through this a little bit quicker i just kind of wanted to frame the boosted uncommons um in the five colors and sort of what cards are sort of pulling you into that color and so, Tyler, any of the boosted uncommons jump out to you? Yeah, uh, earlier I mentioned Seer as being a reason. Like, if you're in pack one and you get Seer, Seer, that's a reason to pull you into a fire-based deck. Very, very good removal, fast fast speed, um, low-costed in general. And, and then, as Hat said, there's a, a distinct lack of large units in this format. So Seer is pretty much, in most circumstances, locked to kill most things. Uh, great card at uncommon. Um, happy to see Mark Maker back for fire. Everyone's everyone's happy to see Waystone Gate back, based on how many of them I'm seeing in time. <laughs> <laughs> um, even when I think that maybe it could that card could be played better than people use it to be played. Uh, what else? Nahid's Distillation, super great value engine. Even at, at at a nerfed rate of being more expensive, happy to see that back. 
Um, I've noticed that there's a lot of defiances going around. Have you guys played? Have you guys run into defiance and in, injustice? Yeah, been... I had two of them in my O3 Combray deck that never showed <laughs> up. Yeah, I still consider it a premium card to pick up, so I'm always surprised when I get past them late. Yeah, well, I think this is one of the uh, interesting things that uh, Tyler had sort of commented about before is Justice, um, unlike Fire, for example, Fire has 11 boosted uncommons. Justice just has seven. So um, I think there's like two ways to... It's it's hard to know how that will affect things mathematically of what you'll see, but... Um, whether that just means you'll see fewer Justice Uncommons. But when you do see a Justice Uncommon, it is much more likely to be Defiance because there's only seven boosted Uncommons in Justice to choose from as compared to Fire, where, you know, it's a little bit... You know, there's just more boosted Uncommons, which means you're less guaranteed to get any individual Uncommon. For sure. So I could imagine there are decks with more defiances in them because there's only seven boosted justice and commons to choose from. Yeah, it's it's weird to me because I, in the past, not not recently, but I've played a lot of constructed in this game in, in the past, and it's something you you learn to play around, and it's weird to have that seep into my my limited environment of like crap. I have to play around defiance right now because it's so prevalent. It's 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 an oddity to me, but I'm sure for the listeners that do a lot of drafting, you're probably experiencing playing around it as well. Yes, and uh, the other interesting thing to note is I do also feel like, um, you know, because there are not a ton of like big fatties, you know, the fact that you're hitting. You know, there are impactful cheap units in this format, and so Defiance is even better in that sense. Mm -hmm. And now that it was unnerfed, um, for those of you who don't know, it originally was like you can kill any unit three cost or less, then they nerfed it to two cost, and then it was like felt borderline unplayable in draft because, uh, you, you know... <laughs> There were just fewer impactful two drops, but now it's back to three drops or less. And so I think there are a lot of impactful units you can hit with Defiance in this format. Um, the other big one for me in Justice is Fourth Tree Elder is back. Um, that sure. card can just win games. Card's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> so good. Might as well be a rare. Can can someone? This is off topic a little bit. Explain to me why they would boost privilege of rank. No, there's not a lot of discard here, um, and that's the only reason that that card really is is at all playable. Um, they seem to have sort of cards that benefit from being discarded, but hardly anything that actually discards. There's. Uh, there's the there's the two one in primal that draws a card and discards a card, uh, and I think that's it. I think that's all for discard in this format. So in, in sure. this, there's also the um, the four cost primal primal draw three discard two. Yeah, that's that's one as well. Um, and 
sure I can see a deck that was playing some justice uh, that also wanted to play that card, but I think that's rare. Um, so yeah, I think it's sort of an, a slightly under-supported theme, sub-theme, that they, that they just added a few cards. Well, maybe, maybe it's less about the card itself, and maybe it's, it's more about them um, trying to push cards that aren't as powerful in that faction to offset the power level of the commons in set 9 in Justice, because you're going to get so many powerful commons in Justice... In the mid packs, maybe they wanted to push some less powerful cards just to offset offset the power level of the commons in the mid packs. So maybe it's more about the the car, the overall available cards, opposed to there maybe. I mean, maybe maybe I'm wrong, but maybe they just just added that in there to nerf the color because I think the general community was kind of tired of justice being dominated or dominating. Yeah, and maybe th- they were counteracting that. Yeah, I. I I can definitely believe that's why they did it because it, I mean it does nerf justice in a sense. It's kind of a frustrating way to nerf justice when when you're drafting because it's just like it just never feels nice for when you're drafting correctly and justice is the open color and then you pass five privilege of ranks and you're like oh. Well, you know, I drafted correctly and just got very unlucky because they put this totally unplayable card in the packs. Yeah, I agree. It, I've never picked that card. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, and then on to Primal. Uh, Primal and Commons, Permafrost, and... I guess I can enter in a general thing that goes for all of them. The Conjuring Cycle is back at 10 x um, the Conjuring cycle is back, so Water Conjuring is, you know, format, all-star, any format that's boosted in, and as as well as all of the other ones. I didn't want to necessarily mention them, mention them till the end, but I guess I'll do it now. That Water Conjuring is there, there's Permafrost, and so in this format you have Siege Provisions at Common to counteract the stun effects, but in, in, a, in any circumstance where they don't have Endurance... Um, permafrost can be so over the top good in this format. It's not even funny. Like if your opponent has like a two unit, three unit, four unit imbue chain, and you permafrost that, you know that head of the army or whatever, you know that head of the circus, and you permafrost that unit, and you just pretty much get a four for one that they can't deal with. That's game winning on its uh, its own. And then I'm always happy to see Plague Griffin back for late game strategies as well. As a good blocker, as some damage to face, as synergy, as synergy with the relic that draws based on units dealing damage. And then Primal always, ha- you know, as always, has some really great flyers at Uncommon with uh, Skycrag Wivark, the five cost Primal Primal three three flyer killer, and the aforementioned Sapphire Dragon, which is the uh, six cost six four with flying and overwhelm. Yeah, and there have been formats where where uh, Primal hasn't had strong flyers at Uncommon, and it feels really weird. It feels like there's a huge piece of what the faction is about missing, so I'm happy to see so many of them. Even if you don't pick up the really good ones, Plague Griffin, Skycrag, Wibark, and, and Sapphire Dragon, there's like Psionic Savant and Wild Cloud Snake as potential like giant flying threats. So it's really got that covered. 
Um, and also, I like having those at, at Uncommon because you don't need a million copies of those big flyers. Those are your finishers. And so you'll, usually you'll see the right number of them as you draft. So I really like what they did with Primal in this set. Okay. All right. And then on to Shadow. So can someone sell me on this Rat Cage deck? <laughs> I, I played not. <laughs> as, as someone that played a lot of Rat Cages yesterday on stream... <laughs> um, yeah, I can't sell you on it. But I'll be honest, there was games where it, it was okay. Because there's a certain number of shadow weapons. <laughs> I mean, I can't even believe that I'm saying that it was okay. <laughs> I, it's actually unbelievable, but it, it was better. Okay, so you look at Rat Cage Unlimited and you think, okay, that's a one. That's a negative one. I don't know. It's terrible. I could, well, see, the thing is, I could imagine Rat Cage. I look at the the boosted commons and uncommons from the draft packs and i think rat cage is a one like <laughs> what there's we have not mentioned any relics besides for a couple weapons and siege provisions there were games where there were games during me forcing mono shadow for about six five or six hours that there was at least one deck and there was multiple there were several decks that I had multiple and in the decks in a deck where I had two or three rat cages and the some of the lower end uh, shadow weapons or the common shadow weapons as well, where these rat cages it would make me like five, six, like five and six rats throughout the course of the game, which gave me sack fodder, um, gave me a go wide thing where they were just getting in damage. And there were a couple moments where I was like, "Wow, I'm playing rat cage on I'm playing rat cage unlimited, and it's actually doing something right now." Uh, I would be willing to say that most decks it's terrible, but there is actually funny enough room room to play it. If you're the right deck, you can play Rat Cage Unlimited, and that you can quote me on that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So besides for Rat Cage, is there any cards we should highlight as being top picks? Yeah, three awesome cards: Defile, Annihilate, Fear Tracker. Love all the three of those cards. All three of those cards are like a solid nine out of ten. Um, and I'm happy to see them. They slot well into something I said earlier as you know your supporting color or a splash. Um, those oh, I can't remember. I can't remember if Fear Tracker is double shadow or not. It's double shadow, yeah. Yeah, okay. Five, so that would five, be two shadow, yeah. But but that's a great card, I, especially in a weapon heavy. Like for instance, that that one game we that one game we discussed against you, Potamaro. Where, where you and I played, we discussed on the last podcast, where in that game, I had like the disgusting start of back-to-back Siphoner Paladins and had a massive weapon and was looking to take over the game. And you just played a Fear Tracker and killed my like, 7-2, 6-2, whatever it was, weapon, like like I hadn't done anything. So that's a, a, a good space that it, it, it fills, is dealing with the relic weapons that are running all over the format. Yeah, and that actually has come up shockingly often for me, where I'm like looking at my turn and trying to figure out how to play against like my opponent's weapon and what to do, and then I'm like, oh wait, my my fear tracker just kills that, and then yes, I play a fear tracker and kill their weapon. Um, yeah, I just want to point out that shadows uncommons are some of the only boosted fatties in the whole like in in the um the curated draft packs like there's there was sapphire dragon for primal and i think fire has skyfire hellkite which is pretty expensive 
Um, and then other than that, fourth tree elder. Uh, but Shadow has has a Minotaur Light Hoof, which is a four four. It's not exactly a fatty, but it enables fatties, and it's it's pretty big compared to other units. And it has Direwood Prowler, which is a five five for six that you can sack a unit when it uh, comes into play to draw two cards. That's one of my favorite cards. I think it's secretly one of the best cards. Um, and uh, maybe not secretly. <laughs> and Fear Tracker, yeah, no, yeah, I, Tracker, I agree. Like, these are these are beefy units, uh, and uh, they that wouldn't be so remarkable if they were up against a bunch of five sixes or whatever. But because it's a little harder to get a hold of large units like that, they're they kind of stand out. Like you can just drop a direwood prowler and without any um, without being able to activate its ability even, and then they still have to deal with a five five with their batch of two ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I actually think it, it's. Funny, Shadow has some really good uncommons. Uh, besides, like, like Rat Cage is the only sort of iffy one in the list. The other boosted uncommons are Annihilate, Defile, Pack Conjuring, Minotaur Light Hoof, Eye for an Eye, Fear Tracker, and Direwood Prowler. All of those cards I would be happy to play in a Shadow deck. Annihilate should not be even legal and limited. Like, it should be a rare... Annihilate is absurd. Yeah, I I agree. So good. All right. Uh, so I guess to um, sort of close out the show, uh, Tyler, are there any archetypes that are standing out to you? Just what are your general impressions of the format so far and like what decks and archetypes are doing well? I will. So... Like we like we mentioned earlier, this is a, a much higher power level format because the cards in general are better um, in the curated packs than they were in uh, nine point five. And and I have a theory. I have a theory why um, why they did this because I don't right now. There's no shining star for me as far as like this is the best or this is the three archetypes. Like I st- when I, I started writing a list of what I thought were the leading archetypes. And, and I have, like, almost 10 archetypes on this list. And I think the reason why they did this is because when you have a higher power level format, it's easier for people that aren't um, super overexposed or experienced with drafting to draft a deck and then have a chance of winning. Because if you, if you give somebody, if you give a new player, you know, a, we'll say 100 or 48 two out of ten cards they're going to struggle to make a good deck but if you give a new player um let's say 48 cards that are all sevens it doesn't matter so much what they pick they're going to be able to have a powerful deck and have fun and i think the reason why they did this is because we're coming right off the celebration where they were trying to sell the game to new players by offering a full collection and i think that coming off of a time period where you know, they're ideally bringing new players into the game by this promotion. Maybe their next step after playing some games is going to be, wow, crap, I'm, I, I'm just new, I'm having fun, and I need to collect cards. So what do they do naturally? They go to draft, because everyone's going to tell them draft and sealed is where they get their cards, or an easy way to get the cards better than buying packs. So if they provide a format that's high power level that is easier to get into for new players, um, 
they're more likely to have a good time and not just walk into a low power like a low power level format like 9.5 be discouraged and you know walk away because i think that i mean while while i think high power formats are more fun because you're going to have cool decks more often i think lower format or lower power level formats are a lot more skill testing because if if like i said earlier if you give somebody 48 cards to pick from that are all bad it's going to be hard to make a good deck whereas if you give somebody 48 cards that are all powerful it's going to be easier to make a good deck so it's less skill testing because if you succeed in a low power level format it's because you know how to build a good deck with with limited resources um but i guess i could mention some archetypes and uh, so mono factions i think going off of this being a high level high power level format it's much easier to get to get a mono faction deck if you decide to push it in this format than it was in the last because if you if you force a mono faction deck in general on 9.5 and then your middle packs are just dead you're you it doesn't work but here the average power level of every card is is relatively high so if you decide early i'm doing mono faction it's going to probably work out for you because even if you're making the suboptimal pick over and over and over again for cons the consistent mono faction deck, your cards are on average still have a high power level and it still becomes a good deck. Um, aside from the mono faction, so I definitely encourage everyone to try try mono faction if you want to have some fun aside from shadow. I, I discourage I discourage force drafting mono shadow after doing it for six hours. <laughs> um, it was torture, but it was fun. It was a good it was a good thing to learn. It was, but it was actually. I mean, I I would just talked about how I played multiple rat cages in my limited deck. You can imagine it's probably not something you should do. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I encourage everyone to try mono faction maybe once or twice if you get a good start. Other, yeah. Other, oh, ahead. sorry. The the interesting part of that is. You know, like we we also talked about is the fixing is so much better. Um, so it's it's weird to be like promoting monofaction when you have incredible fixing. But I do think there is something to that. Um, you know, because also no matter how good the fixing is, um, in Argent Depths, there are still some really solid four influence cards that you might want to play in your deck. And and because there are so many playables, like we've been talking, it really does, you know, even with all the fixing, it, it makes mono-faction decks enticing. Well, like Armed and Dangerous is a card that if I'm two colors or two two factions or three factions, whatever, I look at that card as like a four. But it, anytime I'm mono-fire, having one, I would play like two of them in a mono-fire list and feel good about it. Like maybe in mono-faction, mono like Armed and Dangerous is probably like a seven. Like it's very, very good in mono faction, but the lack of consistency with it, because like effectively the way I look at that card is this is a six cost six cost six six for like six 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 cost six six charge. That's awesome. If you can play that on turn six, that's awesome. Um, but if you can't, it's not as good. And yeah, it is it is odd that the fixing is so good, but I'm a proponent of monofaction in this format because well I mean I don't know how often you're gonna be able to actually play it consistently outside of this format. <clears throat> just because of the power level. All right, and then you had a couple other archetypes. Sure, yeah. Just anything fire, right? Like we'll look at the the, the stats from the beginning of the stream. Um, fire archetypes are good. So Stone Scar, I guess other than Ricano, but 
Stone Scar Aggro, very good. Um, Praxis is also something I've had success with. The five cost spell matters, and and I found with the five cost spell matters decks, you don't have to go like bazooka crazy with it. If you have like four, five, six enablers, it's that's enough. Um, also, Felon Control is back. Felon Control is is great as well as Elysian Control. Um, those two control archetypes, those late game value decks, I think they're back. You have things like Wisdom of the Elders to draw cards. You have Brood of Aramot as a common win condition. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and Tide has a lot of card draw at Uncommon, you know, because it has the Nahid's Distillation, but it also has... Uh, what's it called? It also has Ancient Lore and Vital Arcana. Yeah, exactly. Is Vital Arcana... Think- what is Vital Arcana? <laughs> Is that it's a like, card draw spell? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it draws two cards and you gain two life. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's what I thought. Then I was like, wait, is that the right name for it? Yeah. And Vital Arcana. So and that's it, a lot of card draw in time. There's a Temple Scribe. Temple Scribe. Yeah, I think I think Elysian Control is an overlooked archetype in this game in general. Because it's something that I've played to a lot of success, even on stream and off stream. And it's not how you typically see the deck built. Like a legion control or a legion value, like value deck, and and then there's also another archetype in a legion is, and that's just like the traditional flyers deck. You have flyers and tom. You have a two cost two two uncommon um, flyer in tom locust. I'm a, I'm kind of that card's kind of new to me, but I'm excited to have a two two for two that flies in tom. That's awesome. You have humbug nest. Um, you don't have majestic skies, but I think they didn't put majestic skies in here as boosted because i think it would be too good right now there's too many flyers it would be so oppressive it's not even i think it would be so oppressive if it was boosted it's not even funny yeah right now and um what else is there those oh and and then obviously three four color tom because there's such good fixing there's such good fixing in tom based strategies that that's where you have the most room to um as far as deck design space goes to incorporate and facilitate three and four factions um is when you're base when you're base tom with the amber acolyte with the um um just the other fixing that is there the two costed unit that ramps you and also fixes the, and those are the main archetypes for me yes yeah i agree and uh, i did want to highlight what you were saying with uh Uh, with Locust, that is, I think, a deceptively good card. Um, I forget what set it came out in, um, whether it was, I think it was set seven, maybe. And um, it was our, like, one of the top performing uncommons in that set for us when we used to keep track of that kind of data. Um, It was like, it (laughs) It showed up the most in winning time decks of like any time card. It was like, even though it seems like it's just like a two, two for two with flying, it just, just that early pressure and being like a need to deal with unit on two or else you can just like win the, you know, get in enough chip damage with it to eventually win the game. Um, I do want to highlight that as yeah, uh, yeah, a deceptively strong card. I, I'm a big proponent of it. I haven't played with it a lot, but 
just from playing other card games, specifically Magic, I know that 2-2 for 2 flying is very powerful. Um, like To go on top of everything you said as well, like, yes, it does chip damage. Um, yes, it's cost efficient. Yes, it has evasion. Um, but also, the 2 defense is relatively important because the fact that it can block some things, it can bounce block when it attacks units, um, may not not always be relevant, but the fact that it isn't just strictly if you trade if you block with it you're trading is also important because in traditional um and in, in traditional magic there's a com there's a common flyer i believe it's some sort of i mean the name isn't relevant here but it's a, the, a common in magic in a core set is two costed two one flying for two pegasus, so, yeah yeah pegasus um it's it's a, a just a traditional good card for a, a flying deck but it can't block. That's it's that's like a, the point. The thing is, if you're blocking with it, you're probably trading for their two drop if you have to. But it has two toughness. It has one toughness. And the fact that Locust has two toughness is more relevant than I think it should be. Um, it, but it's awesome. Yeah, I've played two of them. I played two of them in a mono faction Tom deck on stream yesterday, and I went seven zero. And that deck was one of the most fun decks I've played in a long time. Cool. Well, I think that was a pretty good summary of the format. We hit on a lot of good cards, a lot of good points, talked about a lot of great things. Um, I think we'll end our show there. Um, so, yeah, so thank you so much for coming on, Tyler. We really appreciate you sharing all of your knowledge of this format with us. Oh, for sure. I mean, this is fun. This is fun. This is cool. I, I liked. I liked. It. I'm glad that I have the time to sit down and do this right now, um, where I might not in the future because now I'm working again, so streaming will be a little bit less. But yeah, man, thank you guys for having me on. Yeah, this was great. That's this is a this was an excellent uh, excellent three way conversation uh, at a time when I would I I would not have had a lot of original thoughts without <laughs> having a strong base of knowledge that uh, Tyler has accumulated uh, after playing uh, 1,000 games of the format already. <laughs> Thank you, Twitch. Yeah, 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 Twitch makes it possible. And uh, thanks again to all our patrons for making this show a success. And for those of you who are not patrons, a reminder to give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can join us in our Discord, where... Uh, Tyler sometimes posts decks, gives thoughts, um, so you can interact with Tyler there too. And uh, there's a link up to that in the show notes. And then finally, you can thumbs up all of Raven Dragon's Reddit posts to boost the show. And don't forget to send in all your deck lists you do this week to farmingeternal at gmail.com or the aforementioned Discord, um, Discord channel. And remember to keep on farming. Have a good night. Good night. Goodbye. Oh, great episode, guys. Great, great episode.